What is the problem with radical economic inequality? Welcome to the Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we follow up our interview with Jamie Arndt and talk about economic inequality and the problems it creates in our society. Severe economic inequality. Radical. Radical. Yeah. And let's be upfront, this episode came from our discussions after the Jamie Arndt interview, and we realized that there was still some more ground we needed to cover. Absolutely. And probably there'll be more after this. We try to do important ideas, and this is a really important idea. Right. So when I say radical, I mean off-the-charts inequality. And you've got to roll all the way back to Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. Now, that's when American economic inequality started to rise. It actually started to rise a bit in the Carter administration. Carter recognized the danger of it. And Carter raised red flags and voiced his concern. But I don't think anyone in Congress was listening to him at that point. As he said later, they treated me like the governor of Georgia, which is what he had been before being elected president. And the Democrats and Republicans both were sold on the way things were going, being beholden to Wall Street, the corporations, whatever. Along comes Ronald Reagan elected as a result of a fairly racist campaign. And the economy was doing terribly at the time. Of course, it wasn't all Carter's fault, but he got the blame. And Reagan promoted these radical economic theories. Like trickle-down economics. Like trickle-down economics. Based on the Chicago School of Economics and Milton Friedman theories, what Reagan's Republican opponent in the primaries, George H.W. Bush, who became his running mate, called voodoo economics. Yep. And Reagan began to deregulate and lower taxes on the wealthy. And the deregulation continued through the Clinton years, and that's how we wound up with the awful mess in 2007, where these so-called bankers, they didn't act like any kind of banker I had ever seen, these so-called bankers had been just fleecing people. But if you listened to TV and talk radio and read newspapers at the time, they were blaming the victims. They were saying that the people who had been fleeced, who had been victimized by these salesmen selling these god-awful mortgages, it was the buyer's fault because they entered into the mortgages knowing that they couldn't somehow pay them. It was incredibly confusing. Didn't you find that to be the case? Absolutely. And they're supposed to be, they're supposed to have some semblance of decency when they're talking to these people. They're the economic experts, not the, not the guy running a painting business. Right. Or, uh, you know, a, a person in a, a job where they could maybe afford, uh, you know, a, a $150,000 mortgage and they're putting them into a half a million dollar mortgage. And, and they know they're not going to, they know they're going to go out, but it's going to be sold off long before the result ever hits. And it's not going to be them holding the bag. It's going to be the taxpayers. Right. And the real problem here, looking underneath all of this, is the rise of economic inequality in America. It had been rising steadily in the 80s and 90s and was now peaking in the 2000s. And it was an extremely dangerous phenomenon. 
It threatens our democracy, and it threatens our health. Not just economics, it threatens our health. Let me explain. In 2008, I said I I didn't understand what was going on. What I started doing at that point is I started reading economics, which I had never done before. I started with James Galbraith, then Paul Krugman and Joseph Stieglitz. Later, I read Robert Reich, former Secretary of Labor. Under Clinton, he's awesome. Later, Thomas Piketty. Yeah, yeah, Reich is terrific because he, he makes it clear. He explains it in a very, very plain layman's terms. I read Piketty's Capital, who's complex as hell, but he was reaching the same conclusions that these other economists and people like Reich were reaching. I read Matt Taibbi, who reported on what was essentially criminal behavior that Wall Street got away with. Krugman and Stieglitz were Nobel Prize winners. I take them as experts, but this one that really rocked me was a book called The Spirit Level by epidemiologists Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett. And when I mentioned that to you and you looked it up, you said it was controversial. Well, I guess people on the right started trying to hatchet it down, so it must have it must have touched a nerve. As somebody said, if they're shooting at you, you're doing something right. <laughs> right, right, got it. I just finished a little while ago Paul Krugman's Arguing with Zombies, which is a wonderful collection of his essays, op-eds and blogs for the New York Times and so on. And what he makes very plain is that there's a community of genuine scientists, experts in economics, who are working with a lot of the same data, reaching many of the same conclusions, more or less. And then there are hacks who are hired by the radical right, who want a certain politically compatible line of reasoning, which has nothing to do with the facts, has nothing to do with the science. It's just a straight hack job very similar to what was done by the fossil fuel industry, taking pot shots at the 97% of the climate scientists in the world who all agreed on the man-made causes of global warming and the threat. It's the same strategy. And they'll pull out things like Milton Friedman, neoliberal ideas, and these theories have been debunked. They've been proven false. Doesn't matter. They keep bringing them up. People like Mark Levin, who goes on and on about Ronald Reagan's economy and how brilliant Milton Friedman was. Friedman did win a Nobel Prize, but for completely different work that had nothing to do with inequality and his right-wing ideological theories. He might be brilliant on other aspects of economics, but not on the subject of inequality. Looking at epidemiologists Wilkinson and Pickett, and if you're not familiar with the, with the word epidemiology, it has the same root as the word epidemic. It's a medical science that involves the study of health and diseases in large populations. They were looking at the health implications of economic inequality using data from the United Nations. They didn't do this research all on their own. They're basing their book on facts that have been developed by researchers who had no particular agenda, as I understand it. Of course, it involves the United Nations, so automatically the radical right attacks it. Bunch of lefties. <laughs> yeah, the, the United Nations is a bunch of, well, sorry, I've written for the United Nations, and I know what they're about. My wife worked there for 31 years. 
I saw a lot of it from her point of view. The UN is not a bunch of lefties. They represent every nation on Earth, and there are only two nations who consistently oppose the majority of the, of the UN, and they're the United States and Israel. So the research that Wilkinson and Pickett were drawing on was from the UN trying to understand the world economy and world health. And Wilkinson and Pickett took that data and they looked at who are the most unequal economies in the world among developed countries. They weren't talking about tin pot dictators, little countries or countries that would not or could not participate in the studies. They were looking at market-driven large nations. The most unequal country in the world, guess what it was? Singapore. Singapore, number one. My cousin Liz lives there in Kuala Lumpur. There you go. What was number two? Us. The United States of America, the second most unequal developed country in the world. Then they looked at what are the countries with Declining life expectancy, higher infant mortality. Yeah, that's just nuts. Higher levels of depression and stress. All these social problems. We ring all those bells. Yes. What Sheldon Solomon calls a petri dish of psychopathologies. I know. Right? I mean, he's being flip, but he's being accurate. So lo and behold, the United States, for the first time in over 200 years, has a declining life expectancy. Ours is well below Japan's and rising infant mortality. Now, you've got, when I say radical right-wing, and I don't mean your run-of-the-mill conservatives, libertarians, republicans, my father, my grandmother, many, many people in my family are conservatives. That's most Americans. Every society needs conservatives because they get things done. Here, I'm talking about radicals, right-wing people who promote a destructive party line. Filled with hate. Filled with hate. Yeah. Rush Limbaugh. Yeah. Mark Levin. Ann Coulter. Sean Hannity. Tucker Carlson. It goes on and on. I know I'm talking about Fox News and talk radio. That's right. Because those outlets have been hijacked by radicals. I'm not saying that people like Mitt Romney, who purports to be a moderate, does not have some radical views. I think he does, which we won't get into right now. But the fact is that Wilkinson and Pickett and all the thinkers and writers that I mentioned earlier have all been attacked. Pickety, Reich, they've all been attacked by this radical right. And as Krugman says, if you even say the words economic inequality, you're automatically labeled a communist. You're automatically dismissed just by saying, I want to talk about this issue. I want to talk about this subject, okay? What all these experts are saying is that inequality leads to social unrest. High levels of economic inequality threaten the middle class. They threaten democracy. They threaten our prosperity and our liberty. I can't remember where I heard the expression. Have you heard the expression managed decline? No, that's a good one. Well, that's what I heard that the 1% is interested in doing now. Is they're, they're interested in managing the decline of the rest of us to accepting a lower, obviously, because we're all already there pretty well, trying to make us contented with, it all feels like it's heading toward the beginning of the Hunger Games. <laughs> 
you know? <laughs> that book really yeah. pre-shadowed, uh, I mean. Oh, yeah. But Hollywood's been looking at these, but Hollywood's been looking at this aspect of our society this way uh, for quite a while because art does at times. Presage the, yeah. the been a lot of dark cities yes. with, you know, all blackness and death hanging over it. And I think that's kind of what we're, seems to, that's what it feels like we're heading towards. Yeah, right. Now, there are a lot of people who try to explain economic inequality in terms of economics and politics and history and social explanations. They talk about natural fluctuations in economies and the rise of competing labor markets like China and changing technology. I've heard that over and over. Changing technology is throwing people out of work. That's not true, by the way, according to Krugman. People also note the inevitable advantage that superior people enjoy over inferior people. Now, of course, there will always be inequality. And people, like some libertarians I know, will say, oh, you're talking about equality of outcome. No, that's not what we're talking about. They'll say, you're a communist, you want everyone to have the same. No, we understand. Any rational person understands that some people want money more than someone else. Fred Trump, Donald Trump's sociopathic father, for example, who was obsessed with making money in real estate. Now, if that's your predilection, then you're going to have more money than the average person who's not willing to sell their soul for what your cousin famously called chasing the almighty dollar. If your entire world is built around chasing the almighty dollar, you're going to have more dollars than the person who wants to lead a normal life and have a reasonably healthy social life, love life, family life, being a member of a community, parenting filled with joys that come from being a family member, a good neighbor, and all those things that make life worth living. For most of us. For most of us. And some people, no, they just want more money. Right. So they're going to have more money. They're going to work harder for it. They may be smarter at it. They might rig the game so that they're guaranteed to win it. Absolutely. Right. They might be frauds and tax cheats like Donald Trump. And they're going to have more money. But that's all normal. Everybody understands that. But when it's radical... When it's Jeff Bezos radical, when there are monopolies involved and political influence bought and paid for with campaign contributions and teams of lobbyists, then it's a rigged system. It's rigged to suit the 1% at the expense of the working people who are the real sources of wealth. Wealth comes from people who grow things and make things and sell things, not from people who add the beans on spreadsheets and move stock certificates around. And American labor is certainly at a disadvantage competing against China and India for low-skilled jobs. And yes, technology continues to change, causing some jobs to be eliminated while creating others. Yep. But that's not at the heart of radical economic inequality. Now, it doesn't get out of whack this badly until somebody's pushing some buttons they shouldn't be pushing. And those people who want to quote John Locke and say, we vary in what he calls industry. I know, I know. You have to look at the social psychological analysis of this. That's where we're coming from. 
we're not looking at it from the economic perspective exclusively. We're looking at it from a social, psychological point of view. Steve, just to change it up for one second, I don't think it was last show. I think it was an episode before where we talked about Ernest Becker's idea, the questions you would lay out to put in a good society. Yes. Just to say, let's say we're going to design one on a drawing board. I seem to remember when I was studying economics, it may be as far back as in the 70s in college, but I seem to remember a company, and I, th- I think it's, I think it may have been Japan, but a company had set a ratio, an acceptable ratio for how much more, the, the how many times the lowest paid employee, the guy sweeping the floor, how many times more than him could the CEO make? Right. And it was an incredibly low number. Yeah. By today's standards. You know, it might have been like 10 or 13. Actually, in Japan, it would be like eight. Might have been eight. Yeah. And they said just it would just be obscene for one man to take out of this organization more than eight times the amount that another person is taking out. The average worker. The average worker. Right. And now it's like 360 times. Yeah. Somewhere in there, it gets out of hand. So from the social psychological perspective, we realize, as we spoke with Jamie Arndt two episodes ago, wealth, money, is a symbol as well as something tangible. Tangible. Yep. And because it's devoid of a cosmic absolute, which religion would give it, this is purely secular, and one can never have too much of it. You can't have too much money. You can't have too much life. <laughs> right. You, right. You can't have too much life. You can't have too much happiness. Whatever it is. Immortality. Immortality. So we have in this, and many other countries, Examples of individuals and families who are devoted to seemingly endless accumulation of wealth and power. It's no longer enough to be a millionaire. We now count wealth in the billions. Now we're headed toward the first trillionaire. These amounts exceed any individual's ability to spend it all in a hundred lifetimes. Like we talked about before, you could spend a thousand dollars an hour and it would take 114 years to spend a billion dollars. That's obscene. And that's one billion. And that's one billion. At the age of 89, almost 90, Warren Buffett continues to devote his remaining years of life to acquiring more and more. Now, one could say, oh, he enjoys it. That's what he enjoys doing. I think there's something incredibly perverse about that. Oh, well, now he donated so much money to charity. What else is he going to do with it? You can't take it with you. He's got more than many countries. One guy has more than a country. You've got CEOs and hedge fund managers earning enough in a single year to never have to work another day. And live a perfectly tidy life. But they have to acquire more. They relentlessly work to acquire more. And this drivenness to acquire more and more and more is described by some as greed, but it's greed not in the Midas sense. It's, as you put it, greed for more life, more symbolic life. And of course, enough is never enough. Inequality is a source of self-esteem for those at the top of the pyramid. For those at the very top, it's a source of heroism in our society. We lionize these people. And for those at the bottom, it's a source of shame. And for the majority, it's a source of guilt. Now, you might say to yourself, oh, what do you mean? I don't feel guilty because I'm not a billionaire. Yeah, 
but on some level, you have not achieved this higher rank. And if you have achieved a certain level in our society, it's accompanied by the fear of slipping to a lower rank. And the ultimate fear is slipping to the lowest social rung, which is called social death, a form of invisibility and a complete lack of power. The unemployed, the homeless, or the people who have been abandoned in our society. And for those of us in the middle, which is most of us, somewhere between the heroic rich at the top and the socially dead at the bottom, inequality is a way to keep us running faster and faster in what some would call the rat race. The system is the race, and we are the rats. George Carlin had a great description. He said he was describing the differences between the classes, and he said, well, the poor, they're basically there to scare the crap out of the middle class. <laughs> he, you know? Uh, he puts it much better than me. That's what they're there for. If you don't keep working hard enough, you could be like that guy. There you go. That's exactly right. Not to mention where those billions come from. They come from you and me, the consumers of all this stuff. The corporations keep telling us we have to buy to be like the heroes in their TV commercials. What Ernest Becker was saying is that unlike the Middle Ages, where holiness and sainthood were things to aspire to, that was their heroism. Our heroism in the 21st century is based on symbolic immortality. It's measurable, but it's lacking in the cosmic absolutes that people in the Middle Ages had. And our symbolic immortality is this roundabout, indirect, supported by man-made constructs. It's not all-powerful. We're not supernatural beings. And like imperfect repression, imperfect symbolic heroism exists for Darwinian reasons. We're kept off-balance to greater achievement and accumulation of wealth and fame and power as a strategy our culture has unconsciously developed, and our meaning America has unconsciously developed to push our society and our nation ever forward, what I call a toxic culture. The imperfect nature of this form of immortality leaves us perpetually at risk of losing the opportunity for heroism and losing our defense against death anxiety that our culture allows. We are frequently confronted with real death that is not defeated by wealth. How can it be? Wealth is a symbolic defense, and death is real. It might be symbolic, too, but it's real. And there's no way we can really achieve immortality. And so we're left with this conundrum. And it's, as I believe, as many cultural critics maintain, that that's a primary source of stress and anxiety and depression, which is what we've been talking about through a lot of these episodes. Yeah, as Ernest Becker says in The Birth and Death of Meaning, it's an appalling burden that weighs most heavily on the most uh, differentiated and creative people. He's right. Yeah. Many conservative thinkers declare this form of greed to be a good thing. William F. Buckley was one of them. They note that it's a wellspring of creativity and achievement, and the rising tide lifts all the boats. Well, you were doing all right there until you the the boats thing. <laughs> No, people are motivated to do great things, especially if they're motivated for money. No, you're right. People who say equity make everybody the same, they don't realize that they're going to be cutting this off at the knees. Well, now, okay, 
you're talking about equality of outcome. That's what I'm talking about. Right. That's a bad idea. That is a bad idea. And the conservatives are right. Yes. To say that inequality is going to exist no matter what, and if you have free people, liberty, libertarian, if you have free people, you're going to have inequality. Right. I don't have a problem with that concept. No. I don't have a problem with Fred Trump making more money than me if that is what he devoted his life to, and then his son took credit for it, but that's a whole other story. But that's fine as long as Fred didn't break any laws, didn't commit fraud, paid his fair share of taxes. All open questions at this point. That's fine if he was on the up and up. We're talking about getting back to the original point of when guys conspire to sink the economy, that something bad should happen. And that should that kind of behavior should be discouraged. Not only sink the economy, because... What they're doing basically is fleecing the suckers. Right. And also, right. they have rigged the system by taking it over. Yeah. So now instead of a democracy, we have a plutocracy. Complete. Now we have this oligarchy of billionaires and corporations that are running the show. I'm sorry, I hate to say it, and I know people are going to be upset with me because they think I'm being incorrect here, but Joe Biden is one of their puppets. A very talented puppet, but he's still owned by them. Let's be clear about this. Wow, Steve, I didn't think I, I didn't see that coming. Sorry. No, well, they've. I'm voting for Biden over Trump. I gotta. I know. Me too. But but I'm not really excited about it. No, I, I was hoping to be really excited about something. How can you be excited with a clothespin on your nose? That's the way I voted the last time. That's the way we all voted the last time. And I don't like it. No. How could they do this to us twice in a row? Exactly. How could this happen twice in a row? And both of these candidates. You could go back 20 years. All the candidates, Democrats and Republicans both, they're all in the pockets of the corporations. I know. Last I checked, 94 billionaires and their spouses have donated money to Biden. And 92 billionaires and their spouses have donated money to the Trump campaign, according to Business Insider in Australia. Some have donated the minimum, what, $2,800. But others, which, which by the way, is a f fair amount of money for somebody like me. But others have donated millions to super PACs. So that's what I mean when I say it's a threat to our democracy. Because your democratically elected representatives are doing the bidding of the people who funded them. And so there's a front page article in the New York Times a couple days ago talking about Biden's relationship with lobbyists. Imagine that. Imagine that. He's been courted by. And publicly supported with contributions. There you go. So yeah, Trump is a horror. But understand what you're getting with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as well. She was supported by 46 billionaires in the primaries. Again, according to Business Insider in Australia, I'm talking about journalism in Australia because the American corporate media never dwells on such things. And I'm not saying don't vote. And I'm not saying don't vote for Biden. And I'm not saying vote for a third-party candidate because Trump has to be defeated. But know what you're getting because this is a threat to the democratic middle-class way of life that served this country very well in the post-World War II years 
in the late 40s and all through the 50s and 60s, and I know you can't turn back the clock, and I know you can't go back to what it was. No, but there was some good stuff in there. There was, and some of that was good stuff because of what it did for the ordinary working person. Right. There used to be unions. (laughs) Used to be is right. They're all but dead. And that's a major contributor to economic inequality. Our society is experiencing a perversion of that system. Jared Diamond, in his book Guns, Germs, and Steel, makes very plain that when one group of humans has an advantage over another group, it exploits that advantage until the disadvantaged group is driven off, destroyed, enslaved, or dominated. That's what we're seeing here. We're not being driven off or destroyed, but we are becoming wage slaves and are being dominated more and more. I didn't hear revolt or revolution as one of those choices. No. Well, maybe if things get bad enough, our capitalist system was historically tempered by religion and democracy. We've talked about this before. The religion part of it has waned. Now democracy is waning. Yeah. It's less and less self-regulated and more and more a game of winner-take-all, rigged in favor of the ones taking all. Yeah. So the question is, what is being proposed about reversing economic inequality? I haven't heard one word for months. We've got a religion of materialism that's supplanting historic values and the popular power of democracy. It's just being bought off. Bought off by this emerging plutocracy. What else can you call it? Nothing. One person, one vote is being replaced by one dollar, one vote. Yeah. That's a good way to put that. It's no wonder the bunch of us in the middle who are smart enough to see this, but not strong enough, we feel, to do anything about it, are depressed and just despairing. You're right. Economic inequality contributes to depression and even despair. Our defenses against death anxiety come from self-esteem. And in our society, you get self-esteem from wealth, fame, power, and beauty. Right. Well, not everyone can be wealthy. That's just the way it is. Not everyone can have power. Not everyone can have control. You can't be young and beautiful forever. So you're inevitably, invariably, ultimately going to be depressed and despairing because you're just not given the same opportunities for heroism that people in the past had. And correct me if I'm wrong, but what you were just talking about from when we were younger, having a family and holding down a job and raising up some kids and maybe sending them to college, maybe not, maybe they start working right away, but that used to be a viable form of heroism. Yes. And everyone agreed that it was. Yeah, and you had your superstars, salesmen take off, and they do great, and they get a vacation home, whatever. But the rest of us on the block, we're doing the best we can, and we're doing okay. And we were okay with that. Yeah. More or less. Yeah. But now, 21% of American children, 46% of black children, and 40% of Latinx children live below the poverty line. Is that right? Yeah. That's unbelievable. We have more and more working people slipping into poverty and near poverty. You can work 40, 50 hours a week, as you well know. I do. 
and not be able to make a comfortable living. No, I'm not at the poverty level, but I'm not I'm not middle class. No, but the people who answer to you Oh, they are at the poverty level. Absolutely. And they're working 40 hours a week. Yeah. They work really hard. They're working two jobs some of them. Yeah. And they're still not making it. No. The American dream myth is becoming a lie for all of the inherited class and denizens of the boardroom. That's the American dream now. But for the rest of us, social advancement It's less likely in America than in many countries in the old Europe, which had been the bastion of old money and aristocracy. They have more social mobility than the U.S. As one pundit puts it, if you want to live the American dream, you need to move to Denmark. I know that's supposed to be a laugh line, but it's a truism now. Well, I think it might be less true now than it was. I think they might be talking about the Denmark of 30 years ago. Maybe. Times change, people change. Yeah. American economic inequality is more than an economic issue. It's more than a zero-sum game of technology, winners and losers, or competition between nations. American inequality is based on a value system rooted in accumulation with no end in sight. And as your favorite historian Jacques Barzin predicted, We're heading toward a society of oligarchs and peasants, a vast class of people who can neither read nor count. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. And he said it goes on for between one and 200 years, and then people start looking at some of the stuff that we're recommending was a part of a good life, and they say, you know what? That looks like it might have been good. It might have been. Look at some of this old art. Listen to some of these old pieces of music. Wow, they're actually pretty nice. Yeah. Unfortunately, our peasants, though, are not going to have the comforting illusion of eternal reward for a lifetime of servitude and exploitation. The new peasant class will have very little cosmic or eternal compensation. Right. And that's the source, ultimately, of despair. I hate to end on that word. Let's not end on that note. Let's say that what Jamie Arndt was talking about was alternatives to materialism. And I thought he was right on. And I don't think we gave him enough enough credit at that point. When we were doing our post-interview discussion. Jamie, we're giving you more credit now. There you go, Jamie. We did a whole other thing to make up for it, our oversight. So let's talk about some of that. So the whole idea of what people in the Becker community are suggesting is that just by unearthing these ideas and bringing them into people's consciousness, for example... Inherited wealth is a form of immortality that's going to keep you alive and you're going to be in the thoughts of several more generations after you're gone. Yeah. The alternative to that form of heroism, which is in many ways destructive, the alternative is to find modes of heroism that are not based on money. They're based on serving the community. They're based on serving the common good people whom we are now finally calling heroes in this pandemic, that we're saying, if you're a nurse, a doctor, a teacher, an EMS worker, if you're someone who cleans the surfaces of shopping carts or the subway, on the subway, you're doing heroic work. If you're cleaning the floors and you're cleaning the surfaces that people touch in the supermarket, you're doing heroic work and you should be treated that way. And you should be rewarded for your efforts, and you should be recognized that what you're doing for the common good is important. 
I think working with ideas is important. I think the scholars that we have interviewed are real heroes. I think Neil Elgie, who founded the Ernest Becker Foundation, was a real hero. Completely unrecognized outside of his sphere, but within his sphere, he was recognized. He donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to establish the Becker Foundation. Not because he needed to, but because he wanted to do something. He wanted to bring important ideas into the public discourse, which he actually has succeeded in doing. Yeah, he has. With the help of some really bright people who he took under his wing. He saw that he saw these ideas as helpful to the future and possibly that could maybe hip check this thing into a better direction. And he said, maybe make a difference, maybe make a difference, maybe make a small difference. And he said, I'm going to do that with the rest of my life. That's right. And that's kind of what we're doing. Not as effectively, maybe, but (laughs) we're really bumbling at making a, making a real mess of it. But, uh, let's not forget that part, but doesn't mean it's not for lack of trying. It's not for lack of trying. That's the thing. We're not making money at this. We're not going to be famous. We're not going to be powerful. None of that. We're certainly not going to be youthful and beautiful. No, that ship sailed. That ship sailed quite a while ago. Quite a while ago. The Titanic. But we understand that there are other forms of heroism. We understand that what we're trying to do here might be an immortality project. It certainly is. Might be vanity, whatever you want to call it. But at the heart of it, We're trying to do something that we think a lot of people are trying to do, too. Sheldon Solomon, Kirby Farrell, Merlin Mowry, Jamie Arndt, Jamie Goldenberg, Jerry Piven, they're all trying to do something for the common good. They're teaching, doing empirical research, trying to advance our knowledge and understanding of who we are and what we're about as a society and as a people trying to give people a chance to really live well in this society, this cutthroat society that we find ourselves in. I think they're doing a hell of a good job, and I hope we're giving them a platform. Yes, a platform, a way to bring these ideas forward. And at the same time, I'd like to give a tip of the hat to Mother Nature, who has kicked our ass for the last five months, first with the COVID pandemic, Then with this incredible storm that's cut off electricity to well over 2 million people from northern Connecticut to southern New Jersey. So here we are finally, Ken and me sitting in the same room. Sitting in the same room, but we're, but we've got a, we've got a hundred foot extension cord running to the neighbor's house so that we're able to have a light bulb and our recording equipment running and we're in a 85 degree room sweltering. Insane insane what what we're doing what the hell all right okay so join us next time like us on facebook please recommend us to your friends you can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com and support us on patreon we are 100 percent listener supported www.patreon slash the Hub Important Ideas. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.